0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors as well as the occasional guest to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you.
1: Our goal is to bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for those unexpected discoveries along the way. Today, we're discussing heart valve disease, including valvular stenosis, and valvular insufficiency. We'll explore prevention, warning signs, and cutting-edge treatments. More than 5 million Americans are diagnosed with heart valve disease, also known as valvular heart disease, each year. First, we need to understand, what function do the heart valve serve? What are the ways a heart valve can fail? Who's most impacted by this condition, and how does this impact their lives? Here to discuss this topic with me is my guest, Dr. Isilma Fergus. Dr. Fergus is board certified in internal medicine and cardiology. She's a professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine and is director of cardiovascular disparities and clinical lipidology at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Fergus.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. White, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: You know, one of the things we like to do here is we always like to ask about your health discovery centered around treating patients with heart valve disease. How did you get interested in this?
2: Well, I'll tell you, when I became a fresh attending in cardiology and I started my work, there was a young nurse who had postpartum cardiomyopathy and developed severe mitral valve insufficiency to the point where she was in heart failure She required support with something called an RVAD or right ventricular assist device. She was not doing well at all. And the decision was made to replace her valve did not help the situation. Subsequently, and very unfortunately, she passed away and she was very young. She had a new baby. The father was overwhelmed and I was devastated. And so I said, you know, we really need to have a lot more information, research, and just knowledge about how to manage valvular disease for all people, but particularly as it affects younger individuals because it's so devastating. We don't know if she had had an underlying valve problem before. That certainly may have been the case, but listening to someone's heart and examining them would have been a very, very important thing to have done maybe in this case, and potentially a life might have been saved. So that was my moment That was my, quote, wow, a wake-up factor that made me realize we need to spend more time focusing on knowledge about heart valve disease.
1: What is heart valve disease? Because people know about heart attacks. They even know because of recent events in the news about irregular heart rhythms, but they may not know what we're talking about in terms of heart valvular disease. And For many folks, it might be a few years since they had basic biology in high school.
2: So that is a very, very important question. The heart valves are opening the doors or the windows that allow the heart to be able to pump blood from one chamber to the other. So there are four valves and they are the aortic valve and the mitral valve on the left. And on the right, we have the pulmonic and tricuspid valves. And when they don't work, they're not allowing blood to be pumped from one chamber to the other appropriately or for the rest of the body. So you may have either too much blood going backwards or in the direction that it's not supposed to go in, or the valves may not open well enough for the blood to go forward. So those are typically the ways that the valves malfunction and end up causing a problem for the person who has that condition.
1: And very different than a heart attack. So it's not the same thing. But who's most impacted? Do we know? Is it women? Is it men? Is it younger versus older? Walk us through kind of the epidemiology of this disease.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think the most common form of identifiable valvular disease that ends up in a condition where you're very ill occurs for the elderly.
1: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: And now, back to our episode.
2: ...individual, particularly males, because of wear and tear as you get older. However, heart valve disease can affect anyone, even from birth. So, if you're born with a congenital valve disease or condition, such as a bicuspid aortic valve, where there are two leaflets to the valve, You can even have a quadricuspid aortic valve where there are four leaflets. The normal valve is three leaflets. Looks like a Mercedes-Benz sign. But that's just one example. So congenital valve disease is something you're born with and can be picked up and addressed even in the fetus. Other ways that the valves can become damaged have to do with infections. Infections that can happen along the way such as a condition called endocarditis. Endocarditis can be caused by a viral or bacterial infection more commonly and will cause the valves not to work properly by having the valves become defected because of the infection. And they can become regurgitant or allowing a lot of blood to go in a direction it should not go, or they can even get tightened because of the inflammatory condition that affects the valves.
1: We know, though, also some diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, can put people at greater risk. So, what's the impact on minority populations?
2: So, yes, but just before getting to that, I I did want to mention that other conditions that are non infectious, such as an autoimmune type of condition, such as lupus, can affect the valve as well and rheumatoid arthritis because of the inflammatory process that can happen.
1: Sometimes folks don't think about that being an autoimmune disease. So it's a good reminder.
2: Yes, absolutely. But you did bring up a very, very good point. So structurally the heart can shift its shape because of an underlying condition such as hypertension or heart failure. The minority populations or blacks and Latinos have a higher prevalence of hypertension, a high blood pressure. Uncontrolled high blood pressure over time causes the heart shape to change. And because of that, that may involve the valves. And you can end up having a heart disease condition because of those valvular changes. You can also see that in heart failure. Heart failure is where the heart's not pumping the blood, as it should either from a weakened heart that's very big and stretchy. So the valves are big and open and blood's just going freely through. Or you can have a heart that's very stiff and not contracting very well. And in those cases, they have a normal to supernormal heart function, and the valves also may not work in those conditions. Those are usually caused by conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and the heart attacks we were talking about before, which can affect underserved populations or minority populations more.
1: So we know that early diagnosis is important. People might be thinking, my doctor never mentioned it to me. Is there a lab test? Explain to our audience, what's that diagnostic journey to valvular heart disease?
2: I'm an old-fashioned doctor. And the first step, of course, I'm sure you do this as well, Dr. White, is you listen to your patient's heart. You do an examination. So after taking the story and talking with the patient, you listen. When you listen, you may hear a sound. When a valve is not working properly, you can hear sounds within the heart relating to that. So for instance, if the blood is forcing through a very tight space, you'll hear a particular sound that can clue you in that something may be going on with the valves. And you can also hear that regurgitant sound where... You hear a lot of blood flow going backwards across the valve. So an examination is key.
1: But Dr. Fergus, you're a cardiologist. You're an expert. You listen to these types of unusual sounds all the time. A lot of patients will say to me sometimes, you're the first doctor that listened to my heart. Or they came in for something unrelated, foot pain or back pain. They're going to go to their primary care doctor first. All primary care doctors don't take time To listen to, there's different maneuvers one can put a patient through, and people are rushed. So, what do you do if you're concerned? There's an acronym around listen as well. Can can you walk us through that?
2: L speaks to the symptoms that the patients might feel. L for lightheadedness. I the patient may experience an irregular heartbeat, so their heart is not beating normally. Some of the patients go into a rhythm such as atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, or a rapid heartbeat. So I is for irregular heartbeat. S is for, again, another symptom, which may be shortness of breath. So not being able to catch their breath as they normally would, and that, you know, impacts upon their activity. The T is for tiredness. You're just not able to function as you normally would. You're tired, you're fatigued, you're not able to do the things that you would normally do. E is a sign that the doctor picks up e if for edema or swelling of the lower extremities because when these valves are not working you may retain fluid and then n so if you're not feeling yourself that is possibly a clue and if you have any of the other signs or symptoms from listen then you should talk to your doctor your healthcare provider and they should send you into a cardiologist who will then listen and pick up that something's going on. But then there are two tests that we can do very early and very simply in the office that are non-invasive. The first one would be an EKG or electrocardiogram. EKG shows whether the rhythm is normal. Is it irregular? Is it fast? Is it slow? So besides telling doctors about having signs and symptoms for heart attack, you can maybe find out or have a clue that there may be something wrong with the valve because of the rhythm and the rate of the patient's heart that is shown on the EKG. That's a very simple test. It takes less than five minutes to set up, and it gives you a lot of clues. The other thing you could see on an EKG may be some indications that the chambers are enlarged, such as the atria. So you may see left or right atrial enlargement. And when you see that, there's a clue that there's some issue relating to volume or valves that can let you know that there may be something going on. The next test, which is fairly simple, is a sonogram of the heart called an echocardiogram. And that is one of the most helpful tests.
1: It's really the gold standard.
2: It's the gold standard. You can see the heart directly. You can see the valve. You can see the function of the valves. You can see blood flowing backwards or not. You can see whether the valve's are opening. You can perform measurements of the opening to determine whether they're tight or stenotic. And certain numbers will clue you in that this valve needs to be replaced. It also gives you an indication of how much fluid is being retained in the body because you can check pressures, pressure gradients, and you can figure out if you have something called pulmonary hypertension or high pressures in the lungs, which is another clue that this patient needs to be seen right away.
1: So if a patient has a murmur detected, they definitely need to proceed with an echocardiogram. But what about some patient advocates who are saying, we need to be doing more echocardiograms, that gold standard that you and I reference, because some doctors aren't taking the time to listen as carefully as they need to. We know sometimes it's misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. There's certainly a role for the EKG, but that's not enough when we're thinking about valvular disease. Should patients be saying if they have some of those symptoms that you mentioned under listen, hey, maybe I need an echocardiogram? What's your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think patients, if they can, they should be their own advocates, but I love what you talked about just now about having another type of advocate. So family members or someone in the community who can help the patients to advocate for themselves. But I would say, don't be shy. If you feel there's something wrong going on, you know, we just talked about some of the symptoms that you may have. Your doctor should put their hands on your body and listen.
1: Because it's important to have that done. Maybe not every visit, But certainly every year, because as you mentioned, a heart valve disease can be acquired. You could get it later on in life. It's not just early on. And and I find when people think heart disease, they're really thinking heart attacks, as I said, or right blockages. And they're not thinking as much valvular disease, which can also impact their life. I mean, there is good news about treatment. And, And maybe you could walk us through starting with the simplest. In theory, lifestyle, which isn't so simple for many folks, but let's start with lifestyle and and then move up in terms of medications and surgery, et cetera.
2: Well, of course, I think if you look at all of the guidelines, you start with lifestyle. Lifestyle is number one, because give someone 10 medications, you can even take them to surgery. But if they're eating five teaspoons of salt, they're going to retain water, fluid, and they're going to be volume overloaded. So lifestyle is important, obviously walking, exercising, keeping your body strong, but also watching your intake of certain foods. So I just mentioned salt. Excess salt increases your blood pressure, but it also increases fluid or volume retention in the body. You know, if you have a heart valve problem, you can go into heart failure. So watching what you eat, healthy nutrition is very, very, very important. That's number one. Also, the things you drink, right? So the two main things that I talk about are water and alcohol. If you do have certain types of heart valve diseases, especially the ones that make you retain a lot of water or fluid, then you should watch your water intake and not overtake. So you should then have a discussion with your provider how much water you should take in. Or but alcohol, Dr. White, can cause your heart rate to increase and if you do have a heart valve problem then you can go into any regular heartbeat called an arrhythmia such as atrial fibrillation heart valve disease but bottom line is anything in nexus will you know increase the likelihood of something going on
1: so we know lifestyle is important and is really that first step but for many people it's hard we know that so what's kind of that next therapeutic option we have medicines and then we also have surgery
2: So after lifestyle, therapy would include either medical drug therapy or surgical, or now we have invasive therapy in the cath lab. So let's talk a little bit about medical drug therapy. One of the cardinal or essential drugs that we would use would be a beta blocker that helps to slow down and regulate the heart rate so that people don't go into irregular or rapid heartbeats. So there are various different types of beta blockers. If you are someone with high blood pressure, there's several different medications that can lower your blood pressure. You want to have a blood pressure that is a normal range, according to the new guidelines, which is 120 over 70 to 80. So you want to be on medications that can, that, and there's several classes of medications that can do that. Then if you are a patient who have had heart failure, there are medications to control or help them. So heart valve disease can in end stage lead to heart failure. And there are certain medications that are, quote, the pillars of heart failure, or we call it also the cocktail. And those medications, if you are interested, they are the ARNI medications. The beta blockers are included in that the new SGLT2s, and of course, the mineralocorticoid medications. Those are the four pillars for heart failure. And before going on to surgery, if heart failure could be controlled with those, then you may end up staying on medical therapy. But Dr. White, as you know, and I know, some patients, unfortunately, are not feeling their best. They're not optimal just with medical therapy. So then they have to go on to being further evaluated and to have the valve repaired or replaced. So in the past, everyone had to go through open-heart surgery for them. And that requires a cut on the chest, cracking your chest open. After that, they came up with minimally invasive surgery, especially for women, where you could make the cut under the breast, but you're still cracking the chest open. That was all we had in the past. Now we can do these heart valve replacements in the cath lab called tren arterial or trans mitral valve replacements. Typically, you, you know, you're doing a TAVR for the aortic valve, or you can actually help to fix or repair the mitral and or the tricuspid valve right in the cath lab. And the importance of these types of tests is that you're, stay is shorter and it's less invasive. So you can get out and get back to the work that you're doing. So that's one of newer things that's now standardized that we can provide for patients. But you have to be a particular type of patient to be able to undergo that type of treatment.
1: Always good not to have to crack the chest. So we have made lots of advances in terms of these minimally invasive Surgeries to some degree. You know, something we like to talk about on this podcast is the emotional impact that diagnoses have. And here you're told in the doctor's office you have valve disease, right? Patients are thinking, I, I don't even know what that means, right? And and how is this going to impact my life? What's the emotional impact that you often see with patients with this initial diagnosis?
2: That is a very important question. I think that possibly providers overlook this very significant component of managing their patients' conditions, any conditions, but particularly heart valve disease. As you stated before, and we've been kind of focusing on that throughout our discussion, heart valve disease is not something you first think of when you're ill because many people don't hear about, you know, as you said, when you're talking about heart issues, people are thinking about heart attacks, even heart failure, but not the heart valve. So one of the first feelings people get when told that they have a heart valve condition is confusion or anxiety. They don't understand. What is heart valve? Am I going to need to have surgery? It's a lot of anxiety. And that, unfortunately, in some groups comes denial. We have the stoic individuals who say, you know what? I am not going to deal with it because if I don't deal with it, then I don't have to know. So you may go through a myriad of different types of feelings and then comes, you know, maybe the sadness and depression. So it's important to recognize all of the emotions, anger, even that. Why am I diagnosed with this sadness, depression? And then you have the confusion, you have anxiety. So it's very important to have that discussion and if possible, maybe have someone for the person to talk to, maybe a psychotherapist, a social worker, a nurse or other member of the team to just really get those thoughts out so that the person becomes optimistic and ready to really manage their heart valve disease.
1: It is a team approach. It's that primary care physician, it's the cardiologist, it's the nursing team. But other advice you have for patients, I always tell patients to get informed to learn more about the condition and I try to give them useful resources. And then patients often find it helpful to talk to others who have gone through this journey. What advice do you have for patients to help with kind of that mental anxiety that often comes with this type of diagnosis?
2: Yes. It's important to talk, talk it out, get it off your chest. And even if your healthcare providers and the team there They may be talking to you, but you feel that, you know what? I just need some basic information. I just need to know. What do people go through? So there are support groups that are available for people who suffer these conditions. And so you have, of course, the WebMD podcast website that people can go to. There's also the American Heart Association that has great information on that and that you can go on and find a support group. The Heart Valve Society, of course. Is a very great resource and there's a lot of handouts, pamphlet that you can, you know, read about or even find this information out online.
1: We always like to empower patients. How do they become more engaged in their care? Do you have any advice in terms of maybe questions patients should bring to their cardiologists when they have valve disease? What should they be asking you?
2: So then what sometimes when patients come into the office, Dr. White, Everything kind of goes out their head, so what I would suggest is maybe write down your questions as you think about them, so that you have you know a list to bring in and I encourage my patients to do that. but I think first of all, if you're unsure about the medications you're taking, so that's very, very important because if you're either not taking medications or taking them incorrectly, that can actually harm you. So write down questions that you have about the medication, any perceived. Side effects or adverse effects. People may have issues. Men, for instance, may say that it affects their personal or intimate life. Women may say it affects their hair. So anything that you have any questions about your symptoms, your body, listen to your body. We gave you the acronym already. If you experience any of those signs or symptoms, you can write those down so you remember what they are. Anything you're experiencing on your body, like swelling or slowing down you bring that to your healthcare provider. This is a practical thing in terms of healthcare providers have 10 or 15 minutes that they are now allowed to see patients. So if you have guided questions, they can quickly look through it and really focus on these very important aspects of the visit.
1: I love the fact writing it down or putting it in your phone. I've had patients that actually have it typed up on a piece of paper and then they hand it to me at the beginning and I like that because then I can refer to it and make sure. And a lot of times it's really around, are they on the right medication? How do they know that it's working? Is it the right dosing? Is it the time of day? You know, and are they candidates for another therapy, you know, such as surgery? So I really want to thank you, Dr. Fergus, for taking the time today, helping us understand what heart valve disease is, how people recognize the symptoms, how they need to make sure that their doctor listens to their heart for perhaps some type of valvular disease, perhaps advocating for an echo if they're concerned about valvular disease. Dr. Fergus, you mentioned a few times, you know, we have to raise awareness or we talked about how people don't often think about uh, heart valve disease. So how do we raise awareness?
2: Well, you know what? February is heart month and we are already raising awareness about heart disease, but there's a special day that's Heart Valve Disease Awareness Day, which is February 22nd. And so people can go on to different websites such as this website, the American Heart Association. There's a lot of information and then they can find out more and be able to have awareness be raised over heart valve disease.
1: I really want to thank you and all that you're doing. And I want to thank listeners, please take a few moments to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.
0: We have a great show today, but first...